Hello and welcome to the Borderlines podcast, a podcast for the discussion of Canadian border, immigration, and refugee issues. I'm Steve Murens. In R.V. Cattenburg, a recent federal court of appeal decision involving the labeling of wine from the West Bank, uh, Justice Stratus stated, quote, As for judges, some give the impression that they decide cases based on their own personal preferences, politics, and ideologies, whether they be liberal, conservative, or whatever. Increasingly, they wander into the public square and give virtue signaling and populism a go. They write op-eds, deliver speeches, and give interviews, extolling constitutional rights as absolutes that can never be outweighed by pressing public interest concerns and embracing people, groups, and causes that line up with their personal view of what is just, right, and fair. They do these things even though cases are under reserve and other cases are coming to them." End quote. So this paragraph, I thought, raises some interesting philosophical questions that regularly get brought up and which I thought could be an interesting uh, podcast episode to discuss uh, topics such as what is the role of judges, how does the public expect them to behave, and even what is virtue signaling. I'm joined in this episode by Andrew Hayes, a U.S. immigration attorney who practices U.S. immigration law in Vancouver, and he brings a uh, American perspective to the conversation. Andrew and I had a relatively informal, almost philosophical conversation about judges and virtue signaling, and uh, we talked about the case of a Toronto judge who wore a Trump hat to court, a Quebec judge who called herself a feminist before commenting on an active case before her, and comments by uh, the late Ruth Justice uh, Ruth Bader Gingrich, sorry, Ruth Bader Ginsburg, um, about uh, Donald Trump during the 2016 campaign. So it's not too, uh, it's not a very substantive law podcast, and this episode isn't immigration focused, uh, but it is a interesting, I think, philosophical uh discussion around an interesting topic. Uh, if you'd like to relieve a review of the podcast on iTunes or wherever you listen to podcasts, please do. You can also email me any comments, facts, checks, etc. at stevenmurens at larley.com. That's S-T-E-V-E-N dot M-E-U-R-R-E-N-S at larley.com. L-A-R-L-E-E dot C-O-M. I hope you enjoy. Well, I wonder if we could uh, sort of wax philosophical if uh, for just a little bit as to just generally speaking, not maybe in particular legal systems, but what is what is the role of the of the judiciary? Uh, and, and thinking about this, I, I admit that I, I pulled up good old Wikipedia, <laughs> and looked into looked at the history, and, and uh, it certainly goes back. Uh, you know, the role of the judiciary goes back really to the you know the, to the, the mists of time. Uh, and in thinking about this, I sort of considered it as something that is apart from society. Certainly apart from somewhat from the political aspects of society, the whatever the lawmaking function is, if that was, you know, a parliamentary system or legislature, um, 
the, the judiciary role was, was separate from that. And I would, I would say that in the early days, you often had combined roles where you had the, let's say, the absolute monarch, where you had yeah. separate roles. You had the executive, symbolized by perhaps the sword. Uh, you had the, the rulemaking, the rulemaking component, right? The, the, the state it is me. Uh, and then uh, the decider, the, the actual judiciary aspects as well. So those then were, were both contained, but also separate functions within within the monarch, shall we say, that were then slowly split off by uh, we call them reformers. Yeah. Whether that be you know Magna, Magna Carta sort of era, where where the nobles were asserting their privilege to be separate from the monarch, including certain judiciary reforms. Uh, speedy trial, I believe, was was one of those. Um, but I sort of see uh, my sort of view of it is that the Judicial branches are apart from, or at least ideally apart from, the political side of the functioning of government, ultimately to render judgments, uh, decisions on controversy. So whether they be a tort uh, where two, two parties are arguing over possession or, or loss or something like that, a decision has to be rendered. And I would say that the societal benefit from rendering decision is uh, avoiding turmoil, specifically violence. Uh, without a neutral arbiter, eventually violence will will take over. Someone will, you know, go down with their their uncle <laughs> uncles and cousins and, and, and take the cow back by violence. When you say neutral, you mean that is per someone like obviously they are human. So is it just that the presumption that you're approach you're appearing before someone who at least when they look at the decision as a complete blank slate. Um, and going back to Amy Comey Amy Barrett, uh, the statements that a Catholic shouldn't make, I think she wrote at one point that a Catholic shouldn't make decisions in death penalty cases because they couldn't uphold the law first over their faith. So is, the, is it neutral in that you do want that blank slate? You're appearing before a blank slate. Well, I think I think that there's there's of course the uh, ideal, and then there is the the reality. I don't. I would imagine that, that human beings throughout time have understood judges to be human beings uh, and and have their own feelings, uh, whether that be moral feelings or religious feelings or what have you. Uh, but I would say that the function is to be as neutral as possible, so that a final decision can be rendered, uh, and. That's certainly true both in the political sphere, whether that be ascertaining whether laws are constitutional in the American context or not in violation of the charter or, yeah. or, or should be withheld or, or withstood. The, um, the, I would say the, the, big, the biggest concern you know, historically is to have the ability to actually render judgment, I would say. So there's almost a transactional nature to it. And I, I think maybe the word transactional has been polluted somewhat, but it's it's to come up with an answer. Uh, and certainly on the admin side of things, uh, ju the judges have to have to render decisions. Yeah. <laughs> and uh, they are assigned almost quotas in, in the immigration system, which is uh, a burden on, on the judges. They need decisions. But at the same time, they are... Uh, so when you say quotas, are you talking about a number of decisions or an approval? A uh, number of decisions. Yeah, I just wanted to make, like, just to make, yeah. Yes, you know, that's not talking that the U.S. judges have. Sorry, yeah, so that like should be, be clear. Rate. It's not yeah. uh, a certain a certain way. But uh, 
there is the transactional notion, which is coming to decisions, but uh, too many decisions too quickly is rubber stamping, right? It's not actual justice. This this sort of ideal notion of of something that is fair and neutral and I guess just. Yeah. Yeah. For me, the ideal notion. Well, I think most of my clients have what they consider to be the ideal notion, which is whenever we do a judicial review, I would say most of my clients start from the presumption of, okay, the, um, the level of bias and inexperience will start, at least from the client's perspective, at the most with the Immigration, Refugee, and Citizen Canada officer, the CBSA officer, uh, the bureaucrat essentially making the decision, rightly or wrongly, the client will think, okay, well, this person might have bias, who knows what they're training, and then the client will then say, okay, well, now we're at the Immigration Appeal Division. This must be someone who I'm appearing before who has a lot more experience than the people um, who made the frontline decisions, which isn't the way it works. Like, a lot of my clients think that the people at the Immigration Refugee Board are just, say, a CBSA officer or an IRCC officer who's been there 30 or 40 years, um, which isn't the way it works. But that's the perception that you're now appearing before quasi-judicial board that this is one step up. And then the federal court, well, now we're appearing before, as far as the client's perception is, a judge is going to decide on whether a decision was reasonable or unreasonable. And this judge will be a neutral arbiter who is uh, the wisest of the wise. In fact, it often stuns my clients when I have to say that judges actually don't know the intricacies of how an immigration program work, they understand how the reasonableness concept works and can flesh out a decision. And the clients, to the extent that I've shown them some of, and we did a previous podcast episode with Sean Rehag, that yes, it actually does matter uh, greatly who the federal court judge is, but there still is the ideal is that perception like. And in an ideal world, I don't think, I mean, there wouldn't be these big variances in who the decision maker is. I guess, as you say, like what the importance would be having this neutral arbiter or decision maker, does any perception, does the whole system depend on people believing that these judges essentially are able to be completely neutral? And does that depend on judges not speaking essentially outside of the courtroom? Well, I think that that's, uh, that's well, we are having a very interesting conversation in the United States right now. Uh, it's uh, mostly referred to about uh, under the title of court packing. Uh, and so if, if I may just talk a little bit about that. The term, I, I believe, comes from the Roosevelt era. So at uh, in that era, the uh, Supreme Court struck down a number of ambitious public works programs. Uh, basically, it was a, they, they deemed that it was an improper delegation of the legislative lawmaking function away from Congress over to uh, agencies. Uh, there was more or less a threat made by Roosevelt to say, get in line with my, my viewpoints on this, or I'll just keep adding judges until it goes my way. Uh, this was not this was not well received at the time. Uh, this was uh, even by uh, by the, the, I guess partisans. Yeah. Ultimately, one of the judges or justices uh, changed their mind on on delegation, uh, and that and you know 
modern agency and admin law was was born from that. Uh, but uh, absolutely, there is this notion that if, if justices can be compromised, then it is permissible for Congress to exert its natural power to stack the court. And it's, it's sort of often talked about as if it's some, somehow illegal or unconstitutional, which it is absolutely not, because Article 3 gives the power to staff the judiciary or frame the judiciary to Congress. So it's a... It's a always an inherent power of Congress to change the way that looks. Uh, I think Congress should be careful doing that personally uh, because uh, it invites a, a political intrusion into the judiciary that uh, is hard to unwind. Uh, obviously, one side adds some judges, so will the other side in, in an endless cycle, potentially. And that uh, reduces the power of the judiciary uh, in doing so. And I would say, at least in the Supreme Court context, there's a jealous, there's a jealous guard of its of its power. Uh, really, starting from the, the Marbury case, uh, and the Marbury case was an 1803 decision in which uh, the, the uh, I think it was Justice Marshall. Let me make sure I get that right. <laughs> they basically uh, created the concept of judicial review. It was created from a view of the spaces in between uh, the articles of the, of the Constitution. Now, one could argue this was taking uh, taking implied rights from the enumerated rights, or at least enumerated process, um, but it really is the, the foundation of the federal judiciary's power, which is to decide what the law is. And I've got a quote right here. <laughs> it is emphatically... Is this from Marbury and Madison? Yeah, Marbury versus Madison. Uh, it is emphatically the province and the duty of the judicial department to say what the law is. So uh, sort of strategically here, uh, the Supreme Court struck down a law that gave the court jurisdiction over an issue saying that that's a political issue. We don't have jurisdiction over political issues. That resides in the political branches of government. So, no, we're not going to, we don't have jurisdiction. Um, but at the same time, we absolutely do have the right to say what the law is, thus appointing themselves as that arbiter. Yeah. So these things are intermingled, is, is what I'm saying. But the, the, the judiciary has power based on its ability to resist political intrusions. Although inherently, the political branches can overwhelm the judiciary if it is well, if it is if they decide to do so. Yeah, so, that's that. Was it Andrew Jackson? The, the, I can't remember the name of the judge, but the, they have rendered their decision. I'd like to see them enforce it. Yes, you and what army? That's yeah. that's, that's exactly exactly it. Where does it like? So right now, I think pub polls show that, at least in Canada. I, I think it's the same in the States that the public still overwhelmingly trusts the judiciary. An obvious risk of overt bias showing would be people lose their confidence. From a practical standpoint, how do you what do you think how would, would that actually manifest itself beyond would it just be that, you know, we assume we start using the term kangaroo courts in like either Canada or the U.S. or like, because they still have the ability, like, even if people lose faith in the judiciary, well, decisions are, decisions still, are still rendered. Yeah, <laughs> yeah and, and enforced. Yeah. So presumably the executive branch would still enforce, enforce the decisions there. So 
I don't, you know, I don't really think it would be, you know, an immediate catastrophe. I think that, uh, at least in terms of the, the Supreme Court, it does, it does, it does introduce s s some issues in terms of uh, sort of the orderliness of, of the administration of the of the country. Yeah. One of the things we have in Canada that I don't believe exists in the United States is the notwithstanding clause. So, Section thirty three of our Charter provides that. It, Parliament can essentially overrule the Supreme Court. So if the Supreme Court says that something is a breach of, not not on all aspects of the Charter, but some of the major ones, freedom of expression, the right to um, you know freedom from discrimination, the right to not uh, be searched without reason, for any breach that is found, the Parliament or a legislature can say, okay, and just pass a law essentially that says, notwithstanding what the courts have said, we're going to do it anyway. I think it has to. I think there's a time limit on it, and it has to be renewed. It was most recently. I don't remember if he just threatened to use it or if he actually used it. But in Toronto or in Ontario, the Premier of Ontario, Doug Ford, um, I think right before an election in Toronto, went in and basically like change the composition of Toronto City Council, disqualifying it, in effect some candidates who are going to run. And a Ontario Superior Court judge said, this is unconstitutional. And the Premier Ford came out and said, and I'm pretty sure he invoked it, that notwithstanding that judgment, this is how it's going to be. The Ontario, and there were accusations flying both ways, that the judge was biased against Doug Ford, Ford obviously as the politician had his own biases, but um, in the Ontario Court of Appeal ultimately allowed the appeal of the lower court judge's decision. So that decision was quashed ultimately and the notwithstanding clause didn't have to be used, but it provides at least in Canada this outlet. But it does provide, I think, a bit of like a safeguard from at least this extreme I guess almost drive to politicize the judiciary because it's seen as this final arbiter of last resort whose judgments can't be set aside. In Canada, I think one of the reasons that it's become less politicized than in the United States is because there are other outlets that people who want to exert that political influence can take. So they don't have to necessarily say, we need this person to pack the courts, Look, if we just elect, if we can drive at the political level, we could, in theory, just elect a premier or a prime minister who will just ignore the courts. So uh, the United States does not have a notwithstanding clause uh, equivalent. Uh, although when you were discussing this, it, it brought to mind the nullification crisis. Uh, it's a related concept where... Uh, this was as a sort of a prelude to the American Civil War when there was a question between the, the power allocations of the states and and the federal government. Uh, and this what I believe was a was a trade a trade dispute um, and a yeah, tariff tariff dispute uh, between South Carolina and the federal government. Whereas South where South Carolina more or less said, yeah, those those tariffs are unconstitutional, and we're just not going to do that. We're just going to we we're going to be our own decider. Uh, regardless of what you guys are doing, uh, and of course these these conflicts between uh, 
between the allocations of power eventually culminated in, in the Civil War. It's obviously a very uh, complicated mixture of, of issues. Slavery uh, as well. well <laughs> yes, slavery was, was of course, uh, mixed in with that. But the, the issues of, of allocations of power between the states and the, and the federal government uh, really is, is as old as the, the formation of the, of the country. And the, the, first, the first constitution being the Articles of Confederation as opposed to the actual constitution we have have today. Yeah. So, uh, yeah, I think, but I think that the fundamental questions are always the same. What is, you know, what, there's a general question of what is the judge, what is justice, what is the purpose of the judiciary? And then there's the more narrow question of what is the judge's role in a particular transaction? Uh, and sometimes it's more expansive. For example, the Supreme Court, those are often, uh, uh, you know, these, these more expansive issues, right? What is, what is a right? What is, what is a constitutional uh, uh, protection? These sorts of things. And then there are more narrow questions, which is, for example, how should we label this this bottle of wine? Yeah. Uh, <laughs> uh, and uh, uh, we also have these other sort of trans transnational concepts of, of justice uh, in the realm of international law. And uh, one question I sort of had for you was, uh, what is the role of an intervener? Just generally. Uh, I, I wonder if it's similar to uh, Amicus Curi, which is a friend of the court. Basically, we use the exact same term. So it's essentially the same, yeah. the same thing. Same idea. So Amicus briefs are there to be helpful and relevant, uh, you know, for for let's say the judge to understand the situation, the impacts of, of the decision, uh, and these sorts of uh, aspects can actually get drawn into the international realm. So I. I, I admit I didn't read the entire entire decision, uh, but I imagine that some of those uh, interveners have an interest in looking at uh, Canadian the application of such questions as what is an occupation, what is a yeah. legit, what is legitimate um, exercise of power, et cetera, et cetera. Look at looking at local courts here in Canada and applying that potentially in an international context. Uh, there's a couple of ICJ cases that are that are relevant there. Certainly the. the wall uh, was, was one of those. Yeah. Uh, and so in international law, customary international law, which is the laws of, of local nations, I call states uh, local, uh, state, state law, uh, and looking for patterns within that to ascertain what is custom throughout the world. And that is persuasive in uh, international uh, courts, such as the ICJ. Yeah. Um, it's similar, I think, in Canada as it is the United States, which is just amicus curiae, offer an opinion to the court uh, on an area of, usually it's an organization and their expertise as to just some aspect of the decision that they can highlight, whether it's a privacy concern, say, in unreasonable search and seizure, or um, in, say, the immigration context, you'll often see the Canadian Association of Refugee Lawyers intervene because they will often have a perspective to bring forward that is broader than an individual case um, or lawyer who is appearing before the Supreme Court might bring and they'll want to intervene. So it's pretty similar, I think, to what you see in the United States. Mm. So it, it seems to me that there's this, there's sort of uh, dual pressures uh, on on judges, depending on the context. Uh, one is that they have this sort of transactional concept, which is that they have to come up with, they have to render a judgment on whatever the particular issue is. At the same time, they have a duty to appear to be just. 
And now all of a sudden we're into a philosophical realm and the context matters. So on a, on a momentous decision, let's say uh, Brown versus the board, one of the most important decisions uh, out of the U S Supreme court, it deserved some comment outside of the very narrow issue of whether, whether the particular segregation in a particular area of Kansas uh, was constitutional or not. And of course that, uh, that decision uh, overturned, a prior decision, Plessy versus Ferguson, and the court stated that it had gotten the first uh, decision incorrect. Uh, Brown v. Board, I mean, assuming most listeners will know what it is, but that's basically desegregating schools in the United States. Yes, and and opened and it opened up this concept of uh, what equal protection is from yeah. the 14th Amendment. Uh, the 14th Amendment, along with the other amendments uh, outlawing uh, slavery, uh, or the post-Civil War amendments, uh, and they were framed quite generally. Well, some of them were framed quite generally, like equal protection. Well, what does that mean, of course, is the, is the next question. And uh, Plessy versus Ferguson, the predecessor decision, said uh, things something could be uh, both separate and equal and not uh, violate equal protection. Whereas Brown came along and said, no, certain forms of separation, specifically segregation, can never be equal. Is Ferguson, this is totally off, but like topic, is Ferguson the name of the school or the city or, like Plessy I assume was the individual in that case. Who's Ferguson? I, I regret to say I don't know off the top of my head. As I recall, uh, Plessy versus Ferguson was, uh, was I guess one of these, these impact violation or in, impact legislation Sorry, impact. It's the separate cases. but equal decision. Yes, right? but I, I believe it was an individual who uh, sort of, as part to, to make to create the controversy, let's yeah, say, yeah. litigate, uh, went to went to a place on that was either a carriage or train that was a segregated area. Yeah. So they they went to the whites only section and sat down and had to be removed. And I, I believe it was it was that. So I don't know if Ferguson was the commissioner or, or something like that. But uh, city in Missouri. Anyway, so, yeah, but um, <laughs> so. Um, sorry, I threw you off there. Oh yeah, well, not, no. So I guess I guess what I was saying is that uh, there is an inherent political aspect to two judges' role in that they must appear to be just. Yeah. If they fail to appear to be just, then the political realm, you know, I guess in, in the United States case, you know, the elected officials will reform the judiciary because they are the most responsible. Well, the, the, the political uh, parts of the government are most responsive to the people. And so if the political, if, if Congress thinks they can push the judiciary around and not get, not, not have a problem, well, then they probably will. Yeah. And in, in the system, and do you think all that, all that is keeping that from happening is the perception that the judiciary is just a, a, a very large, yeah. I mean, there's, everyone knows it's probably a dangerous thing to mess with, uh, <laughs> but, but yes, I think that is their, their perception of being just. And again, we're talking very generally here is extremely important, uh, for their survival. Yeah. And so what I guess I'm saying is that they're always playing somewhat of a political game. And yeah. that's, that's why uh, I think that in particular circumstances, judges uh, feel it's necessary to discuss their line of reasoning and what their perceptions of justice is outside of narrowly deciding a decision. And I think yeah. the context matters. Yeah. So I have three examples uh, that I pulled up in a quick search of judges virtue signaling. Curious, we could have a quick discussion on each one regarding whether you think it crosses a line, whether you think it 
impacts whether that person will be seen as being just. So the first So was, you're putting me on the record so that uh, when I'm nominated to the Supreme Court, this will uh, come up in the hearing, right? Yeah, exactly, exactly. <laughs> what um, Were you part of a, some church that uh, called its people handmaids? Or what did you say on uh, from CBC News in 2017, a Canadian judge wore a Trump hat in court and he was suspended for 30 days, burned Zabel in Ontario, suspended without pay for wearing a Make America Great Again hat in court. He said he was simply trying to make people laugh. And, you know, let's assume that, let's take away the, like, the, just the appearance, ignoring the fact that I guess he thought people who were appearing before him would have a chuckle about it. What, and I don't think it says what kind of judge he was, but in terms of a judge wearing a hat, Duff Conacher of Democracy Watch says if he had worn a Justin Trudeau hat, the reaction would have been just as strong. And I guess Make America Great Again is certainly, you know, a political, it's basically a partisan political statement. So let's summarize Make America Great Again as... Like, what are your thoughts on, do you think, a judge wearing a political hat in court? Well, I, I, it was probably a bad idea. <laughs> but but uh, I, I would say, I guess, the context matters here. And, and this is not, uh, I mean, Trump doesn't represent anyone here in Canada. It's, I mean, he is a foreign political figure. Uh, and so... In that sense, it, I would say a Justin Trudeau hat is the example you gave would be would be more inappropriate because, well, he's part of the political sphere, whereas Trump really is not. Trump has no say uh, on internal Canadian affairs, at least. Yeah, it would depend, I think, on, in part on the context of the uh, "Make America Great Again" in an immigration court. You'd be like, okay. Well, I, I think that would be that would yeah. Be, that would, but then there's more. Then there's a more direct link between the hat and the, uh, the subject matter. I, I think it's distracting and it would be yeah. unhelpful, I would say, as, uh, as something. But, is, but it, I mean, it's unhelpful to the administration of justice as it is distracting to it, it make America great again, uh, certainly. And I think in that article, uh, people said, well, that's, that's representative of racism and uh, you know, sort of uh, bad forms of nationalism, et cetera. Uh, it just seems a, a distraction from the administration of justice, and yeah. therefore probably should be avoided. But uh, I, you know, judges are people too. <laughs> In the states where they do run, like when a judge runs, are they running as a Republican or a Democrat? Yes. Yes. Would this be a thing? In like, would judges wear? Their parties hats in the courtroom. So um, this would be in the, on the state side. Uh, so it would be the uh, judicial code of conduct for the state. I can't speak for other states, but in the state of Washington, uh, the appearance of impropriety is uh, would be a violation. So I would imagine that uh, that judges would seek not to show political favor in the, in the courtroom for that, for that very reason. Case number two, Nicole Duval-Hessler, December 2019, Quebec Chief Justice criticized for declaring herself feminist at Bill 21 hearing. And first from the article, Quebec's Chief Justice declared herself a feminist in court last week and then suggested opposition to the province's secularism law resulted from 
quote, visual allergies, end quote, to seeing women in a hijab. I actually think that's a bit separate from the, well, I mean, she tied the feminism to the visual allergies comment together. So I guess it's related, but let's say a judge uh, declaring herself to be a feminist in court. Interestingly enough, when I first read that she had declared herself to be a feminist in the context of that case, it wasn't fully clear to me, at least immediately without reading on, whether that meant that she supported Bill C-21 or was against it. Bill C-21 is the law in Quebec that bans uh, religious, essentially most, well, essentially a lot of visible religious gear, religious attire in Quebec, including and prohibits people from, I think, giving a public service and receiving a public service, with the main one being if they're wearing a veil. When he had said, when the Quebec judge said that she was a feminist, I initially wasn't sure if she meant, well, I support women being able to wear what they want, so I support Bill C, or I'm against Bill C-21, or I support... I think the veil is a symbol of women oppression, so I'm against Bill C-20, or I'm for Bill C-21. Um, but in any event, a judge declaring, I guess, outright, I am this, therefore, my decision will be this. Well, I think it goes back to this notion of what is helpful and what is not helpful in the administration of justice. And I would say that, generally speaking, sort of logical fallacies based on appeals to either authority or oneself are not particularly helpful mm -hmm. uh, because law is not the individual. It is above the individual. It's not rule by law. It's rule of law. And I think, you know, speaking about a historical conversation, that really was the big transition is that there is this this thing that is above everybody, yeah. at least theoretically, uh, as opposed to ruling by law, yet I am the sovereign, I am immune. <laughs> we still have some vestiges there, I suppose. <laughs> uh, I am immune and ever, I will use law to rule my subjects uh, or, or whatever. So I, I don't know exactly the, the context here, but I would, I would wonder how helpful it is for a judge to announce their, their personal beliefs as a justification for, for a decision, as it's really immaterial. Yep. Well, and that gets to, uh, and it really does kill me that I keep having to use U.S. examples, but there was the judge uh, that Trump wanted, President Trump wanted recused from hearing, I think, one of the travel bans or the wall case because the person was Mexican. Yes. Now, this uh, this example, uh, I think, was, uh, was, was very interesting because uh, Trump's argument, uh, it was uh, Curio, I think was the, was the ju judge's name. Uh, the judge was not, quote, Mexican. Uh, oh. The judge was born in the United oh, States. Right. I remember that. And he yeah, had yeah. Uh, either Mexican or Hispanic uh, uh, descent. He was, yeah. was a descent. So the notion that the, the Trump put forward there was truly a racist notion that yeah. because this individual was descended from uh, Hispanic origins, that he necessarily couldn't be uh, impartial to the question in front of him. And so I would say that this, this clearly meets every, every definition <laughs> of, of a racist comment. Uh, but yes, uh, that was, you know. Yeah. And I mean, it, it's interesting because at the same time that we're saying this, there's also like, you want diversity on the bench because you get a diverse 
background or experiences that people have, but you don't necessarily want them, you don't want it to be explicit or even implicit because I am X characteristic, I rule as Y. And since, uh, I, I guess since I'm on the record here, I don't want to misquote, but uh, um, uh, well, I'll, I'll just do my best here. Uh, Justice Sotomayor, uh, another Supreme Court justice, was criticized for saying something along the lines of it's time for there to be a, you know, a wise lat Latina on the court. It, and I'm paraphrasing, it was something along those lines. Uh, and she was criticized for this. And I don't exactly remember the context, but it makes this kind of idea is that, yes, and on one hand, we want to have a diversity of backgrounds and individuals on the court. So again, I'm talking Supreme Court here. Yeah, yeah. Yet at the same time, we also don't really want to, we want to pretend that's not the case. Yeah. So it's this duality that, that sort of stalks the, the, the judiciary. Uh, and it's, uh, you know, there was the, quote, Jewish seat uh, on the court. Uh, there's the, the, you know, the black seat on the court. Uh, I mean, this, this, these concepts ex exist. Uh, should they exist? I think that there's a lot of room for debate about that. Uh, but it's this duality. On one hand, it's widely talked about and acknowledged. On the other hand, we want to pretend no, there is no, there's no yeah, yeah. <laughs> interest group seat at the seat at the table. <laughs> well, and moving to uh, another another liberal <laughs> member of the Supreme Court and comment she made, Ginsburg criticizes Trump. So this is from what. July, this is the Washington Post's view. So it was an editorial by the Washington Post uh, in which uh, Justice Ginsburg, I'm trying to find her exact comments, but oh, so Justice Ginsburg had made uh, anti-Trump remarks to the New York Times and she told CNN that week that uh, Trump has no consistency about him. He says whatever comes into his head at the moment, he really has an ego. Um, and I think that was the extent of her comments and it was criticized and she wound up having to apologize for it. So judge of any level explicitly criticizing the judiciary. Um, Yay, Naomi, or sorry, a judge of any level explicitly criticizing the executive or a member of the executive. I think at that time he was still a candidate. Does that um, cast doubt on their ability to rule fairly on them in future cases? I, I think it has a potential for that, certainly. Uh, does it absolutely? I don't, I don't think so. And I think that, again, comes back to this notion that, that, that judges and justices are human beings that do uh, have opinions. Yeah. <laughs> they, do, they do have religious uh, uh, morals uh, and beliefs. They do have political uh, beliefs as well. I, I would say, again, this is, it was not helpful for uh, Justice Ginsburg to do that, and I believe she apologized. Yeah, she for, apologized, I think, quite forcefully. Um, and so I, I think that, generally speaking, we, we do realize that, that that part of the the, the role of, of the judge is to, as best they can, when they're ruling on a decision, put aside those those personal feelings and focus on the issue at hand. Yeah. Uh, and focus at uh, on the issue at hand. Uh, yeah. So I, I think I think it, I think it is somewhat somewhat fluid there, and context uh, dictates. 
Uh, and I, I did have to look up the Sotomayor uh, comment. It was actually from a, from a speech in, in 2001, so it was not... Uh, so that's well before she was going to get... It was well before, yes. Uh, but it was, I believe, brought up in the com confirmation process. Yeah, I think there's like... I mean, I'm not sure how much you can fault someone... Pre, like before they ever, or maybe she was a judge then, but not on the Supreme Court. But like, um, I don't think, I, I do think, and from what I've seen um, in chatting with judges, and certainly lawyers who I know who serve on different arbitration committees or adjudicative committees, they're like, really good at putting their personal biases aside and having to decide a case on its merits before them. Um, and at least the people I know who have been in those roles have been very careful about what they say in regards to that topic at all. In Canada, there's been an issue raised lately in terms of the appropriate roles of judges after they retire in terms of becoming litigators. Um, former Chief Justice Beverly McLaughlin has been hired um, by different provinces. There was unfortunate during a recent political scandal uh, involving former Attorney General Jody Wilson-Raybould that can't remember who it was said, oh, we can just hire Bev to get the opinion that we want. So don't worry, you're not breaking the law because I think they, in terms of whether to grant SNC Lavalin, a Quebec construction or Quebec massive infrastructure company, a contract. Um, and she was saying, I think this is unconstitutional. Someone in the prime minister's office said, don't worry, we'll just get Bev McLaughlin to give us the opinion we want. And it led to a little bit of grumbling about um, whether or not she had become partisan, which I think also wasn't helpful because I think she wrote a, she I think gave a speech or she wrote a book where she had criticisms of former Prime Minister Harper. Uh, so do you think, like, how long should a judge be constrained in terms of what they can and can't do to continue to give the so that people don't look back and say, well, when she, now we know that when she was a judge, she was biased. I see. Well, I think, I think, I think it's really up to the, the judge. And I guess this is not my, my own personal opinion, which I, I, I will just throw out there for the heck of it. <laughs> uh, it's really the, the act of judges that it's, it's role playing. It's a, it's a role that has to be played because as you point out, uh, we well know that people have their individual biases. How well can they set that aside to administer justice? So I would say that if you're an individual uh, judge and you then you know, go into the public sphere afterwards and it casts doubt on your yeah. on your prior jurisprudence, that's it's it's your choice, I suppose. I don't think judges should be limited at all. I think it's a judgment call, and if it does cast doubt, well, they're it's casting doubt on, on their jurisprudence. And I presume that the advocates will, will be out there ready to, uh, yeah, to exploit the, that uh, bias accusation. Well, it's interesting also just like, I don't know, it seems like uh, Peter, when he became a judge, has not issued a tweet, has, uh, I don't know if he was on anything else before, but it is interesting that 
reasonable expectation that judges will refrain from social media. Um, I'm pretty sure they have to put all their investments into blind trusts in Canada or have some third party manage them. So they're not seen to be involved there, but like, you know, the guy with the Trump hat, what if he had worn it outside the court? And in today's age, someone, you know, took a picture of him or Borat, you know, films him with his hand down his pants. Like Giuliani, <laughs> like, how much do we expect, like, outside of the courtroom? Uh, judges, like, is it realistic to expect that judges completely censor themselves to maintain this impression of neutrality? Yes, well, I, I think that, again, it comes down to the context. So in, in, the, in the actual courtroom, it's, uh, I guess one could call it a quasi-secular sacred space. It is, uh, it is a, it's, it's where justice is done. Uh, and, of course, judges have rights, uh, just like everybody else, including the right to, right to speech. Um, I think it's a judgment call uh, and one that's framed by the expectations of the, of the community. Um, I don't hang out with lots of judges, so I wouldn't really know. But I imagine that there's a, a community expectation of decorum and how how one speaks about their opinions in a way not to cast uh, you know cast doubt on on judges specifically or generally. Uh, and I that, that it's again that's almost a political thing. I mean, it's yeah. like it, it, politics. You know, the, it's the action of people. Do, do we dare at the end of this podcast to uh, try to define what uh, virtue signaling is? So I think vir when I think virtue signaling, I looked it up, but I can't. I only looked up the origin. It's it's like a term that was invented by the Spectator in the United Kingdom in either 2004, 2014, and then four. When I hear virtue signaling, I almost tie it in with like I view it. It's funny, like it's a it's a liberal left. I view it as a liberal left. A like when someone says a phrase that shows that they're woke, that's mm -hmm. what I think of virtue signaling. If someone were to be like, you know, go QAnon, I wouldn't think like, oh, he's virtue signaling. It, it does seem to be uh, an accusation leveled particularly against the, the left. Uh, and it seems to me that there's an implicit uh, speciousness to virtual, virtue signaling. It's like it's not the actual virtue itself. It's the signal so that I said the right uh, shibboleth or code or whatever, therefore I'm, I'm virtuous. It's, yeah. it's like fatuous uh, there. And in terms of the actual decision here, uh, if we define it somewhere along those lines, yes, virtue signaling is not, signaling is not helpful to... The, the, the administration of justice because it, it's it's not really that relevant. It's a be, rather be virtuous, be judicious, don't just appear to be. Um, yeah. it, it appear to be in a transparent way. The appearance of justice must actually be related to the actual administration of it and, and in its variety of contexts. Hey, well, for example, I mean, these immigration cases, I mean, the, the judges are not writing decisions in many cases. It's, it's boxes being ticked no, because no, that's no. the function that they have to fulfill. Like all those examples. And this is why I wish that Justice Stratus had like specified what he was referring to because even Ginsburg's like Ginsburg comments about Trump were substantive. It wasn't throwaway. Like to me, <laughs> virtue signaling would be, and you watch Bill Maher and someone will like make a point for about three minutes. That's well-reasoned argued. And the other person will say, um, I can't even think of an example just on the spur of the moment, but some empty 
platitude designed to get the audience to just clap, mm, mm. Uh, which I guess was really like the spacious, like, you know, where it's like wink, wink, nudge, nudge. And none of the, even saying I am a feminist, therefore X, I wouldn't say is virtue signaling as much as, like an example of virtue signaling to me would be if somebody were to level significant criticism of say, deportations in a year and another person was to respond with, well, we got to remember no one is illegal and without getting into like an actual substantive thing, but the no one is illegal and gets a lot of like applause. That is what I tend to think of a virtue signaling. And it's not something it's almost separate from a judge showing bias because like a judge showing well, a judge giving a well-reasoned and I'm just, like totally just a judge giving a well-reasoned description of why they think about something on a certain topic to me is less concerning than a judge who would say march down the street with a sign that just says like, no justice, no peace or something like that, where like, there's still that because it's well-reasoned, because it's articulated, there's the, what's the banality of it? Like the, okay, yeah, they're showing their cards, but they're doing so in a reasoned way. And so you can assume that they'll approach reason the same way, where it's little slow, sloganeering that you see is more like that would be what I would think of virtue signaling. Well, yeah, and I think it's it, it underlining sort of you know what we what we're talking about here is is well, what is what what is the court there to do? And there yeah. are, it starts with a, a big mess always, right? There's a there's a lot of there's a big mess. It has to be narrowed down to specific issues. Uh, fact has to be ascertained in one yeah. way or another. Uh, procedure has to be follow, followed. <laughs> fact has to be applied to law in its variety of variety of ways and. The transaction is complete. Uh, so, I, I would believe that that the argument here is to say, don't get distracted by all of that. That that the proper realm for that is the is the political realm, the public forum, um, etc. Et keep that over there. Keep keep it as a narrowing uh, process in, in in the courtroom. Yeah. And uh, I would say that, that that at least in a general sense is is really is the function of, of, the, of the judiciary is to, is to narrowly resolve control. Uh, I always said controversy. Yeah. <laughs> I tend to be barely sure. Um, is is to resolve uh, the, the controversies so that yeah. the society can can roll on. Yeah. Like anyway, um, I think that's all I've got. As I look outside, it's getting dark, and I've got a bike home. Oh, I've been told I don't do this properly as a podcaster should. Andrew, where can people find you? They can find me right here <laughs> at Miller and Hayes. <laughs> yeah. Is there you're not on Twitter, right? No. What's your email? Uh, my email is andrewh at usborderlaw.com. Andrew H, one word? All one word. Awesome. Yeah. No social media for me. That's, uh, <laughs> that's a personal choice. No virtue signaling.